Hey, Alicia, long time no see. How are you? Hi, Vladimir. It's like, we always like long time no see. We should do it more often. Sure. <laughs> yeah, people will think that in a way we practice the whole recording, but this is not actually the case. Like this is just one straight recording. 50% improvisation. <laughs> yeah, more, I think it's more than 50%. Yeah. Absolutely. This will be our second episode dedicated to the ethical AI. Actually, the first one with our awesome guest Rania Wazir was a huge hit. So thank you everyone who listened to that episode. And we just released the first part of uh, our interview with her. So the second part of uh, the interview will be in this episode. But before that, we have a few announcements uh, from FIBEP. Yeah, so recently we have a webinar that was called The Future of Corporate Activism. And this webinar was conducted by uh, Johannesburg, and but the guest was Fred Cook, which is a director of USC Annenberg Center for Public Relations. And it was really interesting, really interesting webinar. It was mostly focused on the United States, but I think that we can all take this, what's going on in the States, like, and see how, how does it impact our markets. And it's really good webinar. If you want to give it a listen, it's already on the FIBEP website. And in the topic of webinars, we are already going to have another webinar in November soon. And November 22nd, uh, we're going to have a webinar called Gender Diversity and Information Within Our Industry and as a Service. And it's going to be uh, moderated by Maria Laula Garcia. And the guest is going to be Laura Gaidulevich, founder of the director of Biden Group. So so can wait to that because that's also a topic that we are really interested in. And I'm really happy that FIBEP is, there was a, a keynote speech about a, a diversity on the FIBEP World, World Congress. And there's going to be now a gender and diversity webinar for all FIBEP members. So stay tuned to, for that. Great. This is a very important topic. Okay. So I believe that right now we should go straight to the news, right? Okay, so Elon finally bought Twitter. I know everyone knows and that's the news, but no, the situation is changing like so rapidly that actually I, I have like a point by point what was going on on Twitter. So at the end of October, Elon actually bought Twitter for $44 billion yeah. and uh, he entered the Twitter headquarters with a sink in a hand. <laughs> Literally, hand. like a yeah. physical sink. <laughs> yeah, like a physical <laughs> sink making a pun. And that was actually great. That was like, okay, uh, th- that was like the beginning of everything that happened next. It was a great beginning for that because the whole situation is like a big meme, right? So the first thing that Elon did was actually firing <laughs> some people yeah. with a director of, uh, of Twitter and the financial director of Twitter. And so all of that, you know, not that important people. <laughs> yeah, the funny thing is that the moment he bought Twitter, he escorted the ex-CEO of Twitter with the building security. I'm sure that this was not necessary, but I don't know. He just did that. So yeah, this is how the whole Twitter acquisition started. And it's going, how to say, <laughs> really eventful, like literally every day, something interesting happens. Like, and everyone monitors the personal account of Elon Musk because most of the news unfold in that channel. Yeah, his personal account, right? His personal account. Yeah, he actually fired like 50% of the company employees. And yep. then he realized that there's not <laughs> enough people to run the application or the site anymore. So they had 
actually hire these people again, but not a lot of them wanted to come back. Of course. Why? Why? (laughs) (laughs) So then there was like all this matter with the verification, right? So that that the, uh, if you don't know, there you can have a like blue mark uh, next to your Twitter handle that makes sure that, okay, this person is legit. Like the person that is under this this Twitter handle Mm -hmm. is, Mm -hmm. for example, Stephen King, for example, the the book author. This account is run by Stephen King. Yes. So Elon had an idea that one way to get more money to Twitter would be to let people buy the verification mark. For some reason, (laughs) he didn't think about all this like false account who can now get verified for first it was for $20, but then people like, oh my God, $20, that's too much. I'm not going to buy it. So he's like, okay, let's yeah. do it like for $8. Yeah, so, yeah. And someone actually calculated that. So $8 will not get any benefits for Twitter. So it's just, you are giving this power to the people, but it won't run like any financial benefits for Twitter. But what's starting to happen? There was a lot of people who are buying the verification mark that, okay, this is a legit account and then making the forced account. So we have like four or five verified Elon Musk at some point, yeah. Yes. So then, so Daniel was no, you cannot do that. So you cannot impersonate me. <laughs> so these accounts were banned, um, and this is what's going around right now. So there's a, then, then there was a rule that okay, you cannot impersonate like real people, right? Uh, and if you do that, and then you get verified, you're gonna be banned. So now you have to write that you're a comedy account to yes. to to make an impersonation and it's that so funny because when uh, Elon bought Twitter he said like oh finally comedy is going back on Twitter right and then he's banning everyone who's making fun of him yeah so there's also people who are like getting reports for hate speech even if they are just questioning what Elon is doing on Twitter yeah. and they yeah. are banned and there was actually this uh, big big issue with the fake account of a pharmaceutical company that they tweeted out that the insulin is now free and then the stocks for this company just dropped yeah, dramatically yeah, 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 yeah. and that cost that account eight dollars but for that company that's a million of dollars in stock value and it's like what is going on <laughs> like, we strongly advise everyone in the media intelligence community to monitor like to this drama which literally unfolds uh, in front of our eyes every minute because Elon Musk said that until Twitter is fine, he will move and he will actually live and sleep into the Twitter headquarters. So I, I assume that he is there right now. And I suppose this is not the most comfortable place to be. So <laughs> this will accelerate his motivation to, in a way, change Twitter. But yeah, all these experiments of like radically cutting the cost, doing all like public polls uh, to in a way, verify your ideas for product development with a huge audience. Like I've never seen something like that. Actually, I've seen it, but I've seen it, I've never seen it work. And I've never seen it in such a scale for a, such an important product like Twitter. As we tried to predict a few months ago, <laughs> not very successfully, but for sure, uh, Elon Musk will be really motivated to diversify the way Twitter makes money. He started to lose money from advertisement because all the conversation for the freedom of speech in a way scared uh, some of the advertisers because they said that uh, maybe the platform won't be that safe anymore. 
So he lost some money because of that. And at the same time, his first attempt for product development really flopped. Like uh, he perfectly described the whole mess. So he, but yeah, all of this just proves how radical he can be. I'm still in a way optimistic that he will find a way to, in a way, stabilize Twitter, but I'm not sure on what price, how will Twitter look like after that? We'll see. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah because you, you are an active Twitter user. Yeah? I'm, I mostly lurk there and, you know, make fun yeah, of Elon yeah. Musk. Um, so <laughs> do bad. you think it's going <laughs> to impact your, for example, your cloud on Twitter? Do you think it's going to be hard for new Twitter users or, for example, for established Twitter users to, to keep up with the with the followers? Because I actually seen a lot of movement to other platforms from, for example, from artists and from like a smaller influencer. They are moving, to, for example, to Mastodon. Yeah, um, yeah, that platform. Yeah, and a lot of people are also moving again to Tumblr. I didn't know Tumblr is still alive. But actually, it's still alive. It, yeah, it yeah, is. it's owned by Automatic. That's the company behind uh, WordPress.com. So yeah, it's uh, still alive and kicking. But sorry for interrupting. But my opinion is that this is in a way temporary. Like remember uh, all these musicians that left Spotify because of the Joe Rogan show. Mm, this is not a huge wave. Like this is not the normal right now, and nobody's talking about this right now. So I'm I'm sure that some people will leave. But at the same time, and in a way, I believe that this is true, Elon Musk published several charts for the active daily users of Twitter and actually they're increasing. So maybe all this conversation, all this fuss brings back people to the platform. So yeah, we will obviously see uh, what will happen, but for sure Twitter right now maybe from business perspective this is not a very viable business but at the same same time twitter as a product and it's as a social media is pretty much alive and uh, not just alive it's in very good shape so for us uh, people from the media intelligence industry this is still a very important source mm-hmm. for organic conversation which we will monitor so yeah th- that's news number one <laughs> let's see in a month <laughs> what will happen because i'm sure that in our next episode mr Limbus, Absolutely, he will still be uh, one of the main topics in the mini intelligence industry. I'm quite surprised though, but you seem optimistic that he's gonna pull through, right? That he's gonna find a way to make it work because there's like, it was like this big article, like, Welcome to Hell, Elon, about. Yes, from (laughs) Nilay Patel. Uh, This is editor in chief of The Verge, a very influential website. And yes, but what is funny about Elon Musk is that this is not his first hell. I still remember when he uh, started. Tesla and all all the struggles to create the first model after that, to create the factory. This is not the first time where he actually sleeps into the office. Uh, He did that when he organized the first factory. So uh, this is a person who in a way thrives in this type of environment. And for sure, he's very dedicated. Plus, a lot of people will leave Twitter, but I'm sure that he attracts a lot of people who in a way like this type of culture, this how to call it, cowboy. <laughs> the White West. Yeah, <laughs> yeah wa- Wild West, really hardcore culture where a small team of very capable can-doers mm. can work uh, 24-7 in order to deliver something. Like he attracts this type of people who are very radical like himself. So in a way, I'm still optimistic. Of course, there will be a lot of struggle. This is something different for him because um, this is a company which he acquired and that company has its own culture, existing roadmaps, etc., which he pretty much shattered 
in just two weeks, like he fired all the leadership, he fired significant part of the people. And in a way, uh, he, right now it's way easier for him to start on the clean like he won't get, there won't be that much opposition. Like uh, presumably the people who stay with him, they will think like him, they will comply with that culture, etc. So yeah, I'm in a way still optimistic that he will pull through. It will be hard. It will be interesting. I'm sure that a lot of like business people, a lot of leadership uh, people are closely monitoring, learning of how things happen. And yeah, we will see. <laughs> we'll see. Uh, because if he does not succeed, uh, this is very dangerous because maybe his other businesses could sunk too. Mm. So that, that's dangerous for him too. But yeah, let's see what will happen. For us, it's very easy. The wor- Like the worst case scenario, maybe it will be uh, Twitter will go bankrupt and it will be mm. sold to someone else. Way cheaper compared to the 44 billion, I presume. But yeah, it will be alive because it's a major platform and it's, it's still alive. People yeah, are Yeah, I think, st- yeah. think that it's still going to be relevant. We're just going to have to get used to all the changes. Yes. And you mentioned the word relevant. And that's the second part of our uh, commentary about social media. I have an article called The Age of Social Media is Ending. This is an article by Ian Bokosh, uh, who wrote it uh, for The Atlantic. So it's pretty much very influential traditional media website. And the article is very long. I strongly recommend our listeners to read that article, even the experienced one and the not so experienced uh, listeners. For not non-experienced listeners, it's interesting to read it because they're like the author did a great narrative how social media happened, like uh, like from historical point of view, which were the first social media, uh, which problem they solved, etc. But his main topic right now is that uh, because of the Twitter mess, <laughs> maybe we can yeah. call it like that, and uh, the financial troubles of Facebook, maybe of Meta, yeah. I, of Meta sorry, thank you, the financial troubles of Meta, maybe this is the end of the social media. I really would like to discuss with you, do you think that um, we can take the like one company, maybe the biggest social media company, Meta, and see their troubles and in a way because of their troubles, just say that uh, social media and social network is over and in a way we will move to something else. Do you think that this is enough? Because I'm not convinced. I'm, I do not fully agree with the author about that. Yeah, I think I'm more on your side. I don't think that we're going to, that social media are not going to be relevant anymore. I think they will just have to change. They cannot stay in the, in this like state that they are, they are right now. Facebook is becoming less, less and less relevant for young people. And I think that's the problem because that's where the attention is right now. That's the people that are having money right now or are going to have money soon. So you want them on your platform. They want them to use your platform. You want the, the advertisement to be interested in your platform because all that young people are there. And um, the problem with Facebook is that that I think it's kind of looks like their personality. So it doesn't know what it want to be anymore. So it used to be a platform when you can discuss things, when you can yeah. share like your thoughts. And now it's like there's a lot of like videos that are pushed on your dashboard and they are not really interested in it. A lot of like things that you don't really follow are pushed into your dashboard and you are not really able to see the thing that you came for Facebook to Facebook 
Facebook for. So yeah. it's natural to, that you move to the other platform and you're going to like look for a platform that like, lets you engage, for example, with people, with your, like, with your friends or even with, for example, like some influencers that you want to follow. It's so hard to do it right now with Facebook. And I think that's why people are moving away from it. And there's also like the matter of metaverse, right? So Zuckerberg was strongly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, so it was, he was like strong believer in metaverse, and I yes. think it was a little too soon to start with the metaverse. Yeah. And I, in the current form, it's not really attractive to anyone. I think you, we yeah. don't want to go yeah. and see this is like Minecraft, like you know, space, and, uh, and everyone is like you know, squared and have no legs <laughs> and all of that. No, it's not just Minecraft. It looks like a Nintendo Wii from <laughs> 2007, something like yeah, this. It's that's really. True. That's totally true. <laughs> I was in love with Nintendo Wii, <laughs> but this was 2007. Come on. That's true, but it <laughs> does looks like V avatars. That's true. Yes, and they don't have legs, though. Like <laughs> the Nintendo Wii <laughs> avatars. So it's, wow. <laughs> uh, this was supposed to change my reality, <laughs> of course, to substitute my reality with that. No, um, obviously not. I really like the way you explained the challenges of Facebook. Like Twitter, they have completely different challenges. We already described them. But Twitter is mentioned within that article. That's like 50% of the uh, the fundament why maybe social media is dying. But the other half is about uh, Facebook. And again, this is uh, my personal interpretation of mm. uh, the article. Uh, please, dear listeners, read that article, make your own mind. In a way, I'm using that article just to start this conversation internally between me and Alicia. I really like the way you describe that Facebook right now, they have this identity crisis. Yeah. Uh, they don't know what they're doing. And this is a huge problem for a product. Like <laughs> literally don't know what your problem is. And I would really like to go back like 10 years <laughs> or even more to describe how Facebook became popular. Like initially Facebook uh, was very popular because Facebook solved problem, a very important problem for uh, students and universities in the US. It was a very clear problem. All these people who studied you know, in university, they wanted to connect and communicate and Facebook was that platform. So it was very clear re relationship between a problem and a solution. And Facebook was that solution. And there, there was no better solution for that. Then when Facebook really happened, when in a way Facebook uh, internationalized, this was in 2007, 2008, Facebook solved another problem, a way bigger problem compared to the previous one. Like before that, we were somewhere in between World mm -hmm. Web 1 and World Web 2, where World Web 1 was extremely decentralized. There was that thing, internet and the so-called World Wide Web. Sorry, I'm not sure that you're cringing right now, but this is how we call those things. And if you want to participate, there are a few ways to do that. Uh, you can start your own blog and I know you publish uh, photos of your cats and socks, etc. And live stream what's going on with you and share ideas, etc. Or you can create your personal website and do something there. Like this was, literally this was the, the only way. Mm -hmm. 
And it was very challenging for people who wanted to share because obviously they should know how the web work. They should be able to start their own web blog, etc. So this was a challenge for in a way, content creators. And at the same time, it was a huge problem for content consumers because it was very hard to, in a way, memorize all these different uh, blogs, websites, URLs. Um, people use technologies like RSS and RSS readers, like Google readers, etc. in order to just monitor what's going on on that small section of the World Wide Web, which was interesting for them. Like, this was the status quo and Facebook solved all of that. Like, in a way, uh, Facebook killed all the blogs and killed all mm-hmm. this type of media. Of course, a lot of people will say, but blogs are still alive. Yeah, you should have seen, you should have seen how the web blogs, how they look like, like 15 years ago. But <clears throat> still, Facebook solved all these problems. Uh, Facebook became the de facto infrastructure for uh, cat uh, publishing and <laughs> cat video consumption. And this was their identity. A lot, and it solved a huge problem. But slowly, because Facebook became way bigger than intended, I'm sure that Mark Zuckerberg never envisioned that Facebook will be that big and that significant. This became a huge challenge for Facebook because it was not that easy to change right now. Still, Facebook solves all of these problems, but people have new type of problems. And that's why new type of social media appeared. Some of that social media Facebook purchased, like Instagram. Hmm. But before that, Facebook tried to, in a way, copy Instagram. And it was something similar with Twitter because, yeah, I'm sure that the product developers of Facebook, they monitor uh, the competition. If a new format appears, they try to incorporate this into the major Facebook uh, platform. And in a way, they're trying to do that. Like they're, they're trying to push these like reels. Uh, these are these short videos because for sure they're very, like they're competing with TikTok. But of course, they cannot beat TikTok with that approach because, yeah, you just mix some of the TikTok experience with the Facebook experience, with the Instagram experience, with the Twitter experience in one huge hodgepodge. Do you have this yeah. uh, this in Polish? <laughs> this dish, which which is a mixture of everything you have in your fridge. You just put yeah. it in <laughs> in a pot yeah, yeah, and yeah, bake yeah. it and eat it after them. It so, might, yeah. might be a Slavic thing. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. I'm sure that... <laughs> Everyone does it. Everyone does it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, Facebook does that too. Yeah, yeah. I think that's that's what was just said, that the platforms right now have an identity crisis. And um, that's something that makes them not stand out because when you're coming to Facebook, you're coming for a certain thing. I don't want to have Instagram and TikTok and Snapchat and all of that on Facebook. I will go to the separate platforms to to do that. And the fact that Instagram is trying to be TikTok right now and is pushing reels and is pushing like video content that does not interest you. I just want to see the people that I follow there, but I cannot. And that's making people go away from Instagram and they're looking for the alternative for to, to share their, their pictures because it's funny because Instagram started as like a photo app like you know focus on photos but right now if you post photos there they have like no reach at all because okay. they are only interested in video format mm. and even if you post video format it's like the uh, if you want to be a creator on Instagram right now you will have to create so much content and doing a picture is it takes like a few seconds right you have to yeah, do a setup yeah, and yeah. all of that and but you have a picture that you edit it and, yeah, and it's yeah. done but editing a video 
that's like a completely different matter. It's so <laughs> hard to do that, to make a good video, yeah. uh, to, you know, um, synchronize this with music or with the sound that you would, that's yeah. so much work. And I, I agree with people that they, they, they don't want to do that, right? <laughs> Or they already do it because we already have like the perfect platform for video sharing and that's, that's YouTube. True. And this is as even even Elon Musk agrees that YouTube is the only S tier social media. This is one of the tweets and he said he uh, he didn't say I agree with it because this was a tweet from I don't know someone else, but Elon Musk said that said for now. So in a way he agrees, but he will try to put push video on Twitter, which I'm not sure, like I'm a hardcore Twitter lurker. Like I mm. don't share that much, but I consume a lot of Twitter. This is not the place where I will look for a video, but maybe yeah, I don't yeah, know if I they do it correct. Like, maybe, um, yeah. What's the problem that like they kind of don't understand when you use Twitter, you use Twitter when you commute, yeah. when you have like a few seconds to just scroll and I don't have time to watch a whole video yeah. when I'm on Twitter, right? That's not yeah. what I'm looking for there. And even on Instagram, I always unmute. So I don't know what people are saying yeah. in yeah. those videos. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's irrelevant for yeah. me. Absolutely. Okay, very interesting okay. articles. Please read to that article. And I think that we, yeah, we just reached 30, 30 minutes uh, within our first part. This is a way more than our own target. So we'll stop here and we'll just leave you with the second part of the um, Rania Wazir interview dedicated on ethical AI. From my current uh, knowledge and perspective and all the discussions which I had with people on similar position like mine, someone who is like an entrepreneur in the field of media intelligence and uh, automated knowledge extraction, AI, there are two views. One of them is we don't need to regulate anything. Ourselves should in a way regulate, just be sure that people are not going to suffer uh, because we're really scared that the reg regulation will again kill innovation. That's view number one. View number two is the European Union view. <laughs> we, like all of this is so complicated. Most of the actors are outside of the EU. So we, as like a small and medium enterprises, we don't have that big impact on AI. So that's why we need this uh, super state, which will come and regulate that. And from what we see, we have from both approaches, there are a lot of events which are actually happening. Uh, a lot of companies started to create ethical teams and they create internal documents of how to create ethical AI. We have the Microsoft principles, the Google principles, the Amazon principles, etc. And at the same time, we see that the European Commission started to work on a regulation called the Artificial Intelligence Act. So the, the first question here is, how should we do it? And is the regulation the answer? And after that, we'll dive a little bit into the ideas of the European Union about uh, how all of this should be regulated. Alicia, uh, what do you think about this? You work for a tech company. All of your product is automatically generated. I'm sure that you have an AI. Of course. Uh, are you scared that all this regulation will, in a way, kill the way you make your product? It will slow you down or it, there will be too much bureaucracy, etc. So, yeah, what's your opinion on that? I don't think... So I think that we do need some kind of regulation because right now it's kind of free for all. Yeah, it's free country. So we're doing everything. And in Poland, I think there's like not even we are 
really in, the legislation is really far behind the technology. Uh, so we have a lot of problem with with social media, with hate speech, with uh, all of, of legislating all of that. So we are not even dipping our toes in the AI yet as a as a, in, in the legislation step. So I think there should be like a guideline for AI developers that they can follow, that they that will make sure that, okay, what I'm doing is ethical, is not harmful. And it will just, for me, I think it would make your job easier, not harder. Rania, the same question. So in general, I'm actually in favor of regulation. I'm not completely opposed to the idea of principles and guidelines. However, the problem with principles and guidelines is the lack of accountability. So it's all wonderful if I go out there and I say I will uh, produce a product that is 90% accurate and it doesn't harm anyone. But what happens to me if I don't? Do I have to pay any kind of consequences? And right now, with all of these principles and guidelines, that's all there is. There's just, I say that I'm doing it, but but there is no consequence if I don't. Uh, the second problem with lack of regulation is that then you, you leave it open to every uh, producer to say, I, I follow my own conscience and I will do the product well, or I don't care, I only care for the bottom line. And if you leave it like that, well, the person who's trying to do it well is probably not going to be able to compete. It's cheaper not to put in safeguards. So in order to give everybody sort of the same starting position, you should think about putting in some rules and regulating. And finally, the regulation gives people clarity. So they know what are the things that I need to pay attention to and which ones not. And if you're worried about smaller companies not having the ability to innovate, well, there are other ways to encourage this. So take some take some money in your hands and fund particular kinds of research in a initiatives and innovation initiatives, but they're still carried out in a framework that respects uh, everybody's safety, health, and fundamental rights. So yeah, for just putting all of this together, I I feel like uh, a regulation could be useful, but we have to be careful that we are involved in this regulation. So uh, it's really important that the technologists and the people who are involved in the production and the use of the AI systems who understand how they are developed and who understand how they can go wrong are involved in the whole process of regulating and then also creating the standards that will enable the regulation. Because if we're not involved, this is when we can very easily end up with regulation that gets in our way and actually does more harm than good. So I would call people, take a look at it, get involved. This this is your life. This is your world. These are your products. Make sure that the regulation that comes 
is a good one. Then move to that regulation, the, the regulation that is coming. As far as I know, uh, the Air Regulation Act is still in production and it's not a directive to all the EU members. So there is still time. But because it leaked like a year ago, so we pretty much have really good idea what's going on to be within that regulation. And I will really briefly try to do like a very short explainer about that regulation, what's going on there. And please, Alicia and uh, Rania, just correct me if I say something which is not correct. The first thing, like the guiding principle of the EU when regulating AI will be, is there harm to people? Yes or no? And how big is the potential harm? So harm is the leading principle. Then uh, what they did is they created this pyramid where on top of the pyramid are use cases which are potentially very harmful to people and the society so they're forbidden and the forbidden use cases where AI won't be allowed to be deployed in EU this is the social scoring systems so there won't be any social score system similar to the one deployed in China where we know that machines are in a way evaluating people and giving them credits and after that if you don't have big enough credit, uh, certain services are limited to you, like uh, uh, service to travel or other services. This, so the good thing is all of this will be forbidden on, in EU. And the other thing which will be forbidden will be uh, cognitive manipulation of certain groups of people. So those two are completely forbidden and AI, any system which in a way does this, is not going to be allowed here. Another principle is that before deploying an AI, if it's on, yeah, obviously risk on top of that pyramid is completely forbidden, but after that are the systems with very high risks. And I have a list of all the potential use cases, but um, the principle here is that if your system, the system you want to deploy within EU falls into the high risk category, before the deployment, that system should be certified. So in a way, this is an answer of our pre the previous part of our discussions where we discussed that we right now we first deploy with put in production after that we think what's going on, this will be regulated. So it's going to change. And regarding the part of losing uh, innovation, this is a little bit trickier because the vision of uh, the European Commission is that in each member state on a national level, there will be like a commission of people who will do that certification. So not all the certifications will be certified in Brussels, but they will be certified in each member state, which is a huge challenge because it is expected that in each uh, European member, there will be enough people who are capable to do that. So this could be a challenge and maybe that's uh, why they're still thinking about how to apply all of this. But yeah, the principle here is think before deployment, certify before deployment and companies uh, shouldn't be allowed if their system is falls into the high risk uh, category to just deploy the system and hope for the best. This will be regulated. And after that, uh, uh, there are systems with very low risk and no risk at all. Uh, but let's focus on uh, the high risk system. I believe that Rania explained some of them earlier, but uh, just for the sake of the podcast, I will um, explain them the way EU says that they will be regulated. The first uh, critical area are uh, critical infrastructure, in example, transport. So all the cars which are driverless, they will be regulated in EU because, you know, if the car kills someone on the road, yeah, that's bad because people are suffering. Then education, AI in education, especially when AI evaluates people, their performance. 
that will be regulated. So <laughs> uh, yeah, teacher will still need to, to validate students' <laughs> exams. So yeah, uh, we, are, we cannot give this to AIs or if that's the case, that those machines will be pretty much regulated. Another things which will be regulated are all the components of systems for uh, security. An example, all the surgeries which are done remotely and if there is some AI involved into that. So yeah, all of this will be regulated. Then all these HR tools, which uh, have some form of AI in order to filter a job candidates, those will be again regulated. You, you get the idea. Um, so the principle is if a machine will evaluate a person, this is a high risk category. So it needs to be evaluated and certified. Another thing is very important parts of uh, public services like credit scores. So if you want to go and become a customer to a bank or take a loan, your fate is not going to be decided by a machine only. And this will be regulated and this is a really good one. And then again, migration, border control, etc. That will be regulated and administration and um, democratic process or so everything connected to like voting, etc. That will be regulated too. So yeah, these are the main areas right now, or at least which we, I can find, which will be regulated by the Artificial Intelligence Act, which is coming. Uh, there is nothing said here about media intelligence. <laughs> so we're still thinking, where will the media intelligence products fall in? Will it be a high risk category or it will be considered a very low risk category where most of the innovation will just happen and uh, we will hope for the best. So this is what we know right now. Rania, Alicia, would you like to add something? Did I properly explain this uh, regulation, potential regulation? Yeah, the, the only thing I would actually add is right now, very few, even of the high risk systems, are required to be third-party certified. So the regulation puts in place a whole bunch of requirements, mainly about testing and documentation and the quality of data that is used. But all of this can be done internally. So by the company itself, it self-declares. And in very few cases, is it required to have a third-party auditor or certification? And the one, the one field that was forgotten is biometric AI. So any kind of facial recognition, but also if you're using um, people's gait, the, the whatever you're using about the physical person in order to recognize the person, those those kinds of biometric systems currently also fall under the class of high-risk AI systems. And especially those ones, many of them will require a third-party certification, at least according to the draft AI Act. Uh, what is then going to come out is in, in the real act, it's it's not known. It's currently uh, many amendments have been put out, some by the council, some by the European Parliament. Uh, all of them pull in different directions. Some uh, parties want the AI Act to be much weaker or to be much more focused. They want to restrict, for example, the definition of AI, whereas other parties and uh, other players are 
asking to expand and give more powers to the AI Act. And right now it's actually not very clear who's going to get their way. So all of this is still up in the air. Yeah, what's your opinion on that? Uh, Should we have more regulation or this is just enough? Let's start with this and gradually adapt to the reality. Let's do not over-regulate. Well, we don't want to over-regulate, but does it make sense to exclude certain software systems from the act? To me, that is not the case. If, if a software system, even if it's a traditional software system, is going to have a high risk of causing some kind of safety concern or a health concern or an environmental concern, why should it be excluded from the act? This might ironically have a harmful effect on innovation because then people will say, well, I'm not going to try this new AI which falls into the AI Act. I'm just going to go for the traditional stuff because then I can do whatever I want and I don't fall into the uh, AI Act category. So I don't want over-regulation, but as I said, I want intelligent regulation that is actually going to achieve the effect of protecting us from the current wild west of algorithms that we have. Okay, do you both agree with these main principles and the approach which the European Union choose to regulate AI? Would you change something into this? Do you think that something is unfair or maybe it's not right? The one thing that I'm worried about is the part that it's going to be up to every like, nation to regulate their own like AI uses. And in the countries like mine, when we have some issues with keeping our democracy and uh, we are slowly going into like more of the authoritarian system. It's kind of worrying because there might be some issues with if your your AI is not in the line with the party's line, you might actually get not not get approved even if you're like something just can improve people's life, right? So that's something that's kind of worries me, I guess. I think it would be if that would be like more of a centralized thing that might be better than than giving it to every country. Yeah, but don't you worry that the other way Poland will lose its, in a way, some of its independence, its sovereignty, because really fundamental uh, things about its economy will be decided in Brussels. Do you think that that's better compared to, I don't know, the other risk? Yeah, I think that's something that we have to uh, keep in mind, right? But uh, we we Poles are really good at keeping our independency. (laughs) Yeah, even though we are not really a country, we, we are still thinking that we are so yeah but that's something that's worrying me you know recently Hungary was announced that it's not really a democracy anymore and that's something that you know kind of I guess we as European citizens kind of want European Union to protect us from from our own government so you know it's it's a hard choice because you have like the choice between like the evil government and then the evil corporation <laughs> there is like no, 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 no good choice there. There is no win. Um, Rania, do you see any field of improvement of this regulation? Well, do you have another um, podcast? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> we can do another episode, I know, but just give us the trailer here, like the teaser. <laughs> well, fundamentally, it's hard to talk about a regulation which is not fixed. And Right now I see possibilities where it could it could go well and possibilities where I cringe. 
I, I think I've already mentioned this. I don't think it's a good idea if we start restricting what is meant by an AI system. I think this is the wrong way to go. I also don't think it's a good idea to exclude things like general purpose AI from the AI Act. That if that is done, if we do exclude general purpose AI from the AI Act, we should realize that we're excluding practically the foundations of probably 80% of AI systems that we have out here. So certainly if you're using any kind of natural language processing, you are building on a general purpose AI. And if you're using some kind of computer vision thing, you're also working with, with a general purpose AI. So excluding those from a regulation would mean that you're putting the full burden of compliance on the little companies that are trying to build on on this technology. Whereas, again, you have to balance that with the idea that if you move the burden of compliance onto the producer of the general purpose AI, they might decide not to open source it or not to make it available. And I completely see that this is a balancing act, but... From my point of view, excluding them from the AI Act will kind of destroy the clout of the AI Act and make it rather weak. So let's just say those are my two main concerns. Other issues are, you know, the high level at which it is currently phrased. And I'm very much hoping that the standards will come in and fill the gap here. But if it takes very long to create and come to an agreement on what is the regulation, it will be very hard for the standards to step up and be ready when when the act comes into force. Okay, thank you, Rani and Alicia, for this very interesting episode. I think that this, this will be our longest episode, Alicia, which we ever produced. I'm sure that we have a lot of other questions which we didn't cover here, but if we do, we'll really reach Joe Rogan proportions of <laughs> uh, real estate in podcasting or even uh, Lex Friedman. So let's stop here, uh, but promise to in a way record another episode when that directive is in a way already an act, uh, which is a fact. So let's see how will they uh, put it, how they will transform into the directive and what will happen when all this regulation hits the real world? Is this going to be the new GDPR, which, yeah, there was huge hype around it. And right now it's just like a tech, tech obstacle. And for the majority of users, it's just additional maze of interface where they can click yes, no, etc. when they visit the website for the first time. Or it will be something really meaningful where we will see a literally better, uh, better and way more ethical AI. Let's see that. And let's agree to talk again on this topic. Thank you again for your time. Thank you, Vladimir. Thank you, Alicia. It's been really a pleasure discussing with you. Thanks for the invitation. We'll talk to each other soon, I guess. <laughs> Absolutely. That's a promise. 
Thank you for staying with us. We really hope that this interview was really useful for you. I'm Vlado Petkov, one of the hosts, and I was with uh, Alicia Bors, who was the other host. We would like to say thanks to our producers, uh, Sofia Krakeva and Emily Jaitler. They really helped us with all this content, and we're really grateful uh, to them. And we'd like to say thank you to Mr. Anton Velev, who mastered and edited uh, this podcast. And finally, we would like to say thanks to our marketing team. They are Anna Tsanova and Oresti Patricius. Thank you, guys. And if you don't want to miss any new episodes from this podcast, it's really easy to subscribe to us. The best way is to go to Spotify or Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts and subscribe to us. Or actually, we are presented in the most all, all the independent and popular podcast listening apps. So just check your phone. If you want to send us feedback, uh, you can mention us on Twitter. Actually, this is the official feedback Twitter profile, just mention us and our podcast or just send us an email to secretariat at fibeb.info. Again, thank you for listening to this podcast and uh, thank you for staying with us and bye-bye.